welcome to Inquiring Minds, the Writing and Literacy's Special Interest Group podcast with the American Educational Research Association. My name is Gemma Cooper-Novak. I'm here with Leslie Knoll, and we are going to talk today with a wonderful group of scholars about arts-based literacies. We'd like to welcome our participants to the podcast today. We have Dr. Erica Rosenfeld-Halverson from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We have Dr. Stephanie Tolliver from the University of Colorado at Boulder. We have Dr. Jasmine Ma from New York University, Dr. Chaba Oshvat from the University of South Florida, and Dr. Jennifer Schneider from the University of South Florida. Welcome, everyone. So we would love to start by hearing a little bit more about all of you. Can you introduce yourself and tell us through that introduction about your work in arts education and arts literacies? Um, Dr. Halverson, you want to get the party started? Sure, I'm happy to. So uh, I am right now a professor and department chair of curriculum and instruction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, that's my day job. My side hustle is I am the self-proclaimed mayor of Whoopin Soccer City, which is a community arts outreach program that I run here in Madison. Uh, that is an artist in residence program that centers kids' voices through creative writing and expression. Um, I just wrote a book called How the Arts Can Save Education, which is about the ways in which arts practices should change the way we do teaching and learning and design um, across discipline areas. Uh, and I've been researching how people learn in and through the arts uh, for 20 or so years. So this is right in my wheelhouse and it's a pleasure to get to be in community with all of you. Thanks for being here. Um, I'm uh, Jennifer Jasinski Schneider. I'm a professor of literacy studies at the University of South Florida. Um, my work focuses on children's composing processes, including print-based and digital composing and uh, dramatic performances and embodied spaces. So specifically, I, I work a lot with youth in uh, film making films. And I do that in, in connection to pre-service teacher education at USF. So I have pre-service teachers working with youth in creating um, content through filmmaking. Um, and I also work within children's literature. So examining illustrations and, um, and picture books as um, aesthetic objects. And so underlying all of that is approach to um, literacy education that's built, I, I, I say, in the old fashioned days, I'm on the language arts side of literacy versus the reading side of literacy. And that's just where I've always been. So um, my, I also have a background with process trauma that I got from going to Ohio State. And that was an unexpected finding that changed my whole career. So, um, and I used to have a big children's literature conference where kids would come to the university and work with authors and illustrators until, um, Local districts started getting rid of field trips and budget cuts happened. And so that I don't have that anymore, but I did that for about 20 years. So that's me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for being here. Hi, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Um, I might be kind of the weirdo here, so I'm really excited to, to chat with you guys and learn from you guys. Um, so I'm really, it, uh, my work is at the intersection of math education and the learning sciences. Um, and I've spent a lot of time really trying to think about how we can develop and conceptualize more expansive ways of understanding what counts as mathematics, um, not just as something that we do and we impose on kids in, in, in an incredibly compulsory way in, in schools in this country, but, but also in a way that informs how we understand how people learn. Um, I think a lot of our math education research has, has served to inform our learning theories in really narrow ways, and then we sort of generalize on, on those studies, and it's, it's, it hasn't worked out great um, from an equity point of view. Um, and so, uh, part of what I've spent a lot of time doing is is trying to make sense of people how people are really successful in other contexts that are not intentionally kind of mathematical. So, um, an art creating company, skate parks, um, most recently uh, an after school 
program where they were making sort of social justice focused uh, documentary films. And trying to really understand kind of um, in those contexts, some kind of artistic and aesthetic practices that shape learning. Um, and, and it's not to, people have done work that looks for like, like how people do mathematics when they do art. Right, like, and they've also looked for kind of how how mathematics has some aesthetic properties to it. Um, but really, what 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 I've gotten really interested in with my colleague Molly Kelton is the idea of like, what if mathematics actually came out of some aesthetic values and aesthetic practices, rather than I would argue that in this country, following from like some really great work by people like Sepper Vakil and Shirin Fusugi, like like the, the militaristic agenda of this country, the capitalist agenda of this country as where mathematics comes from. So that's sort of a long way of saying that I, I, I really think about sort of artistic and aesthetic practices as a, a value system that I think we have a lot to learn from in STEM education. Um, my name is Stephanie Renee Tolliver. I'm an assistant professor of literacy and secondary humanities at the University of Colorado Boulder. My work really centers the freedom dreams of Black youth and Black communities. Specifically, I look at the ways that Black people and Black youth are represented in young adult literature, specifically speculative young adult literature, so science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Um, and in terms of my artistic work, I try to find ways to write about the world, write my research in sci-fi, fantasy, and horror stories using um, theorists and things like that as characters who interact with the people who are part of the research. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Oshvat. So, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Chob Oshvat. I'm a recent graduate from the University of South Florida, and I'm going to start as a visiting instructor in August, so I'm very excited. But, uh, you know, I came to literacy. Uh, I, actually, I grew up in Hungary, and uh, my previous incarnation or my previous life before entering the field of literacy was focusing on horticulture first and then religion and theology. So I, I have always been fascinated by aspects of like nurturing and nourishment and transcendence. So from, from you know, farming, I became fascinated by the process of cultivating uh, a harvest from a seed. And from religion, I was really um, like interested in this concept of incarnation. Like how is it possible, you know, there is this, you know, famous New Testament passage referring to Jesus that, you know, the word became flesh. And and that statement always, always made me so curious about this idea that is it possible that words, ideas, principles can become like a, a functional entity, like a sentient being? So, you know, soon I, you know, I realized that that maybe that's the goal of life, like maybe, you know, our role as, as human beings is to incarnate ideas and to live what we learn. So first, you know, we do it through literacy and and it's it's so true that, you know, reading and writing offers us access points and and places places within ourselves that we couldn't access, you know, outside of reading and writing. But then I soon discovered that art and art making does the same thing. Like it, it's almost like a magical portal. It can open up these new vistas or, or you know, widen our horizon or, or maybe give us like a totally new vantage point on life. You know, my, my grandmother used to say that when you learn a new language, uh, you gain a new life. And I love that existential aspect of learning a new language and gaining a new life, but I think it's true for art and art making. So when I'm engaging with an artistic material or in a process of art making, I truly feel that, you know, I am, I'm kind of extending as a human being. So, but most recently, like my work is, has been focusing on immersion and, uh, interaction in virtual spaces. So I've been fascinated by virtual reality and how virtual reality presents us stories, how we live stories, how we practice literacy in virtual spaces. Because, you know, before virtual reality, we 
you know, read a text on a page or encountered words in a space, but now virtual reality actually allows you to become like a letter or become a word, like your body can morph into like a text, which I find fascinating. And it, I think it will like kind of change our entire way of thinking about literacy or understanding literacy. So that's, I know it's a long introduction, but I've, I was carried away, sorry. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much for being here. So we'd like to start off our conversation today by asking um, what brought you to arts literacies as an educational researcher? And can you describe a moment that has impacted your thinking about arts-based literacy today? I have a very clear um, moment. It, it, well, it was a series of moments, but um, I started off first as a first grade teacher and I didn't know what, I don't have an arts background. I didn't go to school for it. I just, I've always been artistic myself, never trained. And I don't, I would never call myself an artist, right? But I put on plays, I transformed my room. I, we changed the whole space by, you know, making mountains and doing things like that. Then I went to study at Ohio State, my doctoral program, I mentioned this earlier, and I went for children's literature. It was the place to go at the time. And then through that, through my major professor, Terry Rogers, I, she said, you've got to take a class with Cecily O'Neill. And I, I said, okay, what's this process drama? Oh yeah, I did, I did a lot of classroom drama, I'll, I'll do that. That, it was nothing like I'd ever seen before. And when Chaba, when you mentioned about immersion, that's what it was. It was immersion, immersion into stories and other places. And it wasn't acting, it wasn't rehearsed lines, it wasn't performance. It was being in a moment and taking on roles and doing things. And it changed me as a person inside the way I viewed the world, the way I viewed teaching and learning. And so it was a really pivotal, pivotal, pivotal experience through that, um, my doctoral program that then I brought forward into all of my work. And then it connected in a way with making movies, which I had always done, like on the side, you know, little projects and things that I never done any of this professionally or anyway. But then it all came together. I went to the Tampa theater and saw a movie camp, brought that together with my process trauma. And that's where I, I kind of all the worlds have come together. I wish I was a professional artist. I wish I had I, so I do all of this through an amateur lens, but I think part of that is just making it playful and exploring and not, it's not professional. It's, it's um, thinking, right? It's the process of thinking. Well, I can offer Jennifer that you and I are a little bit of a yin yang. Um, <laughs> so I trained to be a professional actor and that's what I thought I was gonna do. And when it got to the point where we shifted what I would like to say from the craft to the career. So mm -hmm. craft of performance has always been the thing about which I've been the most passionate, but then like any good undergraduate major, then they got to tell you how to get a job. Right. And <laughs> when I realized I was going to be playing wacky little sisters for the next 20 years, I thought, well, I think I'd rather figure out ways to continue working on the craft. Um, and I started and ran a nonprofit arts organization in Chicago uh, where we were going into classrooms and working with young writers and doing performance work. And I had trained a little bit um, with the, the version of, of, of the folks that you were talking about at Ohio State at Northwestern where I was an undergraduate. and. Uh, uh, a few years into doing that, found that kids were learning stuff and found that classroom teachers repeatedly pointed to kids who they thought typically didn't learn stuff were learning the most stuff. And I asked pretty naively, and, and Jasmine, I'd be interested in your thoughts about this relative to the learning sciences, like, can you learn about learning? Like, is, is that a thing that one can learn about? And it turned out that yes, you could. Um, and so I went into the study of the, of the learning sciences with an arts-based lens. Mm -hmm. So my interest was knowing that artistic ways of knowing, doing, being, seeing, valuing 
were the things I cared about, how could you apply questions of learning and teaching to that field? Um, so it's really cool to hear you say that you sort of came at that from, from the other from the other side of it, but we've ended up in, in very much a similar, similar place. And I also teach pre-service teachers um, and teach about the role of art making in their future teaching lives from an artist's perspective um, rather than the other way around. Yeah. I feel like I should make a pitch because Erica probably won't do it for Erica's recent special issue in the Journal of the Learning Sciences around arts-based learning, arts-based sort of studies and learning theories. It's like a fantastic issue that just came out this year. That was a labor of love. I can say, I know we're not here to like talk about the, the challenges of having a career in education research that centers the arts, but 20 years ago when I started doing this, there was no one yeah. in this space. Right. Yeah. Um, and I repeatedly was pushed into STEM, you know, and very much for the reasons, Jasmine, that you articulated, right? Of like the the sort of desire to capitalize on learning. Um, and I it's really moving actually to see this group of scholars come together, even just in this in this podcast, of people who take seriously the idea that difficult conceptual practices like representation um, can be understood from, the per from an arts-based perspective and maybe tell us something different than when we understand representation as a sort of, you know, cognitive act of disciplinary practice. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, like the, the inclusion of the term literacies in, in just the title of this SIG is sort of sort of life-changing probably for a lot of folks, right? Who and I think in both of your stories, Erica and Jennifer, there's sort of this these assumptions that we grew up with, who who belongs in which kind of boxes or categories, like who who has an arts identity and who has in my in my situation like a math identity and and then how do you shift from one to another? or you know or or which ones don't intersect at all um, or what sacrifices do you have to make in order to shift from one to another um, and and i think conversations like these are the exciting kinds of things that give us the opportunity to um, change that story for kind of kind of the kids coming up to, to say those categories are we can make those categories different right like yeah. that doesn't have to be a thing um, I just just like I'm going to tell a really short story because I feel like sometimes you don't hear about scholars like how their scholarships intersect with just their regular life in incidental ways. Um, but my wife is a is a museum registrar. And so she works very closely in the fine arts um, with artists, curators, art creators, which is how I ended up studying an art creating company and and hearing the kinds of things that I was interested in representational practices being one of those things and watching the amazing work that curators and art handlers and people who build crates for art objects like that they do she was like oh my gosh jasmine like you have to go hang out with these people because they're gonna like change your understandings about sort of these disciplinary categories and so that's kind of how i ended up where i am right now Yes, this is also like, you know, when Jennifer mentioned that, oh, I'm not an artist, like, you know, it's like we, we often find ourselves making excuses like, oh, I'm not an artist, but um, maybe like the more I engage with the arts, the more I see it as maybe as a birthright. And I think the only thing for me was going for as a child to become an artist, this was, this was the miserable childhood I had and the suffering. And, you know, I don't have like a background in art. I don't have a professional degree in art, but, but soon I realized even as a young child that, you know, stories had this transformative power. So the first instance, and I just wanted to kind of relate back to Jennifer's uh, point on process drama. Uh, so I was still in seminary, but I was working at uh, a local clinic with terminally ill children. 
And we decided to create this immersive theater. Uh, we blindfolded the children and we brought them inside the story. So we created the sounds, the smells, the taste. So since they couldn't see, their imagination was just alive. And we used like children's stories when, about heroes and heroines. So we kind of, they kind of went through the story, not as readers, but as the main character, because we were fascinated by this aspect of what happens when you actually experience a story. What happens when you become the story, and you know how will you face uh, life challenges? So, so again, I, I realized coming to the U.S. also that you know my linguistic abilities were not good enough to you know be in a master's program. So, out of desperation, I started sculpting uh, the stories we were studying in class, and and that's how I actually got through my first semester to take these sculptures to class and try to explain how I understood and thought about the story. So, and that kind of led me into, you know, my doctorate work in arts and theology, which was actually connecting to Erica's work as artist in residences, because I was fascinated by this aspect of having artists working in, in a community, uh, having artists working with people, even if they don't share the same perspectives or same beliefs, but what an artist can offer to a community in terms of expressions and power. So so that's how I got here. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Chaba. I would like to also welcome Dr. Stephanie Tolliver, who's joining us. Um, so far, we've just gone through and introduced ourselves. And Dr. Tolliver is from University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. I'm so sorry I got the wires crossed with time zones. <laughs> oh, it's okay. We were just talking about what brought everyone to arts literacies as an educational researcher, and if there was anything that had impacted your thinking about arts-based literacies to date. So I never considered myself to be an artist at all, ever. <laughs> um, and that was just a weird, like now I'm considering myself more to be in the arts-based world, but that's not what I considered myself to be before because it was never presented to me as an option. And so storytelling, which is kind of where I situate my artistic work, was something to do on the side, something that you keep to yourself, something that you don't show anyone, but maybe your mama or like a sister or something, but not something that I can bring my scholarship and mix it together. And so it wasn't until um, I kind of kept everything separate and it was during my doctoral degree proposal for the dissertation and I was writing it and I did you know I wrote it in the ways that they tell us to write it with all the different sections and I hated it I was just like this is not gonna be fun and I understand like everyone says like a good dissertation is a done dissertation so just power through it and I was just like I could I do it yeah but I would have hated it the whole time and so in talking to my chair, she was just like, it seems like you're not feeling this. Do you want to write it, like write your dissertation in a different way? And I was just like, what you mean? <laughs> and she was just like, I know you, do you want to write it as a story? And I was like, but like, is that okay? Like, am I still going to pass? Cause like, I still would like to get my degree and I don't want to do all of this. And then y'all say no. And so, um, she was just like, you can make a pitch for it and see what happens. And then I went into the proposal stage and I, at the end, cause I wrote it in the way that they wanted. And at the end, I had a little section called dissertation format. <laughs> and it was like two paragraphs of like, so I know you all just read all of these really great academic words. Um, I would like to write it as a sci-fi novel, please. And <laughs> I, um, I explained it and I was like, oh, I'm going to do it in the same way. Like chapter one is going to be the introduction, but that's going to be like the world building. And then like chapter two, I'm going to do like the theoretical framework or the lit review. And I was like, I'm just gonna do them as characters in this story. And they were like, I feel like some of them were very skeptical, like girl, what you doing? But um, <laughs> I was gonna try it anyway. And as I was writing, I felt like I was called back home. Like I grew up in storytelling worlds. Like my mom told stories, my family told stories. That's how I learned about who I was, who my ancestors are, cousins, all of that. And um, I felt like I was getting back to who I was and allowing myself to just not separate art from education, but to blend everything together. And I found so much joy 
in writing that I don't necessarily always find in writing the traditional academic articles. And the fact that like I, so I worked with eighth grade girls, they read every chapter before I sent it to my dissertation chair. And like the fact that they're like, oh, I like this character. Oh, mm, take this out. This is not, this is not what I like. I don't like this person here. And like, we're able to give more commentary than I think would have happened if I gave them my actual, like a, the dissertation in the ways that they're traditionally done. And even now, like I turned the dissertation into a book and my mom read it and my mom reads nothing but my abstracts. Like she does not read my articles. So I, I feel like I've, I'm doing something right. And doing something right means getting back to who I was and who I tried to separate myself from in order to exist in this space. It took me 20 years to do that, Stephanie. So it is so <laughs> freaking inspiring to hear you say that you did that from the jump. I mean, really, you know, I, yeah, that's all I want to say. It's really <laughs> inspiring to, to hear you say that. I think across all of us, there's this a combination of permission and identity, but also connections with networks of people that give us access to other ways. Is uh, Jasmine, when you were saying the the people that make the boxes and things, I, I it reminded me that I would go to this lounge that we had in my university where all the the guys would hang out that are making gaming computers, and I would just sit in there and listen to them all day and then we would talk about things and they were building websites i can't do any of it but i would watch them and talk to them and pick up some things and then it it leads into knowing and connecting and all these other ways that you can make that happen and i, I love that um people are feeling they can have dissertations that are expressing and matching the content right because those genres are shifting it makes me think about the methodological component of our collective contributions, right? There's sort of the, the theoretical contributions, but then there's like changing the way we think about what research is and can be. And there have been some really fabulous uh, methodological reorientations. I think sometimes it gets a little... Um, what's the word, like sh shunted off to the side as like, these are arts-based research methods. And right. I like that because it gives it a name, but it also makes it like, this is different than regular research, right? Rather than saying, we need to think epistemologically about what the nature of research is and how arts practices can inform that. But I really like that we're collectively moving in that direction too. Sometimes at, at like conference presentations, I will outright say I'm doing something arts-based and then other times just come with something arts-based. You know, like one time Chaba and I presented and we made a board game that we did in a um, round table, you know, or I've done performances and things. And then sometimes we just kind of spring it on people and then they look a little bit. <laughs> I don't like doing that, though. I don't like people feeling uncomfortable, but I think that, that the methodological, um, the way of knowing and the way of sharing is changing, and I think people can expand what they understand if, if they are open to it. I think it's like we need to also sort of address the, the status issue, right, depending on your context. Giving something the, the artistic label could be acceptable or not. Yeah because there's power relations at play. Sorry, Stephanie, I interrupted you. Oh, I was just commenting on like that methodological aspect because I think about, for me, it's not things that are changing. It's things that have been pushed out. So when I talk about like storytelling, black people have looked around at the world, saw what was going on and told stories about it and like had their findings just wrapped up in the stories that they told. And so it's not that it's a new thing for me. It's just going back to the things that existed that got pushed out because the academy didn't want us here in the first place. And so I think for me, it's like when I talk about method, like especially when I'm doing like the arts-based work, I talk about it as qualitative method that has been ignored. And so it's not necessarily just like, oh, it's in art space. I'm like, no, this is just regular qualitative methods. Mm -hmm. And 
I push, I try to push back on that a lot with method and saying that like, there's so many different cultures around the world that engage in what we call arts-based work in this context that's not considered arts-based, it's just research. And so I think that that's important methodologically to think about. I think that connects to something else we were wanting to ask you all, which is where do you think the most significant intersections of art based literacies and the pursuit of social justice in education are. Just kind of connecting to it, what is research and what is research for? I think it's a very important question for me. You know, what's the function or what function it fulfills in my life? And that's why I like going back to my you know, previous incarnation of being a farmer, because for me, cultivating a garden was always about creating nourishment. And and this idea of like, I'm doing this because it will keep me alive or it will keep me healthy or it keep me functioning. So that's that's what I also want to see from, from, from research. Like, you know, does it nourishes me or does it keep me alive or does it change me? I, I think even it's, that's a better question. Can my research you know, evoke change or create change. And, you know, you know, you, you mentioned uh, David Stovall in, the, in your question, and, you know, he often talks about this idea of, of radical imagination. You know, how can we uh, reimagine a school uh, through a commitment to education or, or how can we, you know, change the structures that we created? And I think there is no better start or way to cultivate an imagination, a radical imagination than the arts. So, so that's, that's what I believe that, you know, we have a tremendous value in education in terms of cultivating radical imagination and reimagining spaces, reimagining the way we, we conduct research or reimagine the ways we educate people and ourselves. I love that. And I think that connects a lot to what I really appreciate, Stephanie, your comments about sort of, I, I heard it a little bit as like normalizing the work, right? Rather than, than treating it as a special thing acknowledging that the practices, many of which have these arts-based roots, components, you know, are part of communities culturally sustaining lives. And that our job is to center that rather than to create something anew, but to say, you know, black story work, for example, is a culturally sustaining practice that by definition, I think is so is social justice oriented, right? Because it centers the experiences of the storytellers as, as both research and education. Uh, you know, it just it, it just is. <laughs> I think also you think about concepts of genre and what has been expected. And those genres were created for certain groups to talk to each other in their secret coded language. And now other genres are entering in the mix. That, like you've said, they've been there, but we're not allowed because we don't want to hear that that way. Now we are taking, you know, claiming those genres and 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 bringing them out so more people have access and, and different kinds of access. So tell me what you guys think about this. So so I'm listening and, I, and I'm like nodding along and, it, and I think it's great, except I, I also have this feeling around arts that 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 like any other discipline or any other domain, there are definitions and gatekeeping around art and mm -hmm. what counts as arts versus like, I don't I don't I don't know a lot about this. So yeah. stop me if I'm embarrassing myself, but like like the, the differentiation between arts and crafts. Right, and mm -hmm. arts as as like a little more highfalutin. I don't, I don't know the right words. Capital uh, right, A so, art. <laughs> so 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 I I do feel like there's a lot of promise in thinking about sort of arts and arts literacies in in having a way to to open up some of our our incredibly oppressive other disciplinary categories and domains and ways of teaching and learning. Um, but I also kind of wonder about the tension of arts in itself and, and the history of, I don't know, white American US based arts. Mm. 
think I think about that a lot because I write in speculative ways. <laughs> so sci-fi, mm-hmm. fantasy, and horror, which is predominantly um, white male futures and other worlds. That's kind of where most of it goes. And so I do think about that a lot, but I also think about the fact that like, there are, I feel like just with everything, there are multiple definitions of the arts and like what counts as the arts. So like when I think about my son who draws a very interesting looking horse, that is art to him. And to someone else might be like, oh, that's a terrible thing that you've constructed. But for him, it's beautiful. And so I think that like there's possibilities for like both ends, like dealing with that tension and also realizing that we have multiple definitions of art and that's okay. And I also understand the tension of, well, what happens if we don't have a definition? Like what happens to the field if something is not constructed in a very specific way? So that there is definitely tension there in a, in academia where everything has to have a definition and we have to use that definition for everything. But I, I think that it's also important to think about like, yes, think about the tension and also center the multiplicity of definitions that are possible if we get out of the idea that there can only be one. And I think I just quoted yeah. a sci-fi movie. But. Yeah. It's like, uh, how do you define this in academic analytics or your high impact, you know, your impact mm-hmm. factor? How do you how do you define this along those lines? Those are the, the, the measurement tools that are used. Yeah. And they're not, they haven't changed. No. And I think about, I think what you said earlier, Jennifer, about like, who is it for? Like, who are we talking to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like the arts lends itself to talking to people beyond the eight people in our field who might be interested in yes. our articles or books. Like people look at art and feel things and think about yeah. things that are happening. People will read stories. They'll look at poems. They'll look at weaving, like the baskets that people have woven mm-hmm. to tell stories and everything and just feel something different from reading our very structured method sections and all of that. Yeah, I, I often feel that, you know, we, we kind of like focusing on art and artists as an identity instead of an, an engagement. You know, I, there's a, a definition, uh, what's the definition of uh, modern art? I could have done this. Yes, but you didn't. So I think that's kind of symbolizes that <laughs> It, you know, it, it, boils, it boils down to that engagement. You know, when I'm, I'm writing a poem, I, I can claim that identity. I'm a poet because I'm writing. When I'm making art, I'm an artist. So, so I think it's, it's so important that, and also like this idea of craft, because, you know, in craft, you have this craftsmanship when, you know, and, and, you know, when you study, you know, the life of these craftspeople, they're really honing their arts, really practicing. There is deliberate practice, there is intrinsic motivation, there is all this passion. So I, I, I really like to focus more on the engagement, doing art, rather than, you know, claiming an identity or putting a label, okay, this is art, this is not art. No, I, I just want to do this. I want to live it. You know, that's why I mentioned this idea of incarnational literacy, that, you know, I want to incarnate what art is, and it might not be approved by other people, but for me, this is still my doing and my existence. Mm -hmm. I also think there's like great learning potential for identifying the tools and genres of specific, both art forms and sub art forms, not to value them more or less, but to recognize, and this is where the literacies part comes in, right? Like, what is what is the body for in dance right. representationally? And yeah. the answer to that is actually not the same for every dance form. It's not even the same, you know, between ballet and modern, which are both sort of you know, historically Americanized modern, you know, Western modern dance forms. Um, and and I found a lot of value and there's a lot of research folks, like I think about, oh gosh, Dion Champion's um, research lab, embodied physics learning lab. And I, I think that's right. If folks are listening, you can Google those words and probably find it, um, right? Where they look at how young choreographers come to understand the same tools differently based on the dance form in which they're located. And there's huge learning potential in that. And I love that power of arts practices 
regardless of who defines, you know, crumping as dance and art versus ballet as, as dance and art. Yeah, uh, there's a, a great poem by Eduardo Galeano and he says, the church says, the church says the body is a sin. Uh, science says the body is a machine. Uh, business says, uh, the body is business and the body says I am fiesta. So you know this this idea of that we have this one entity we call body but in every field it's viewed differently and treated differently and I think this is the same issue with art. Like you have all these conflicting like ideas about what it is and what's the function. I'm wondering now that I'm listening to all of you talk about um, who we're writing for or the engagement um, or having passion for the arts. And I'm wondering in teacher education, how can we effectively include arts-based literacies in our instruction while we're preparing pre-service teachers, especially given how education is being systematically dismantled in the K to 12 settings? Does anyone have anything to share about that? <laughs> this this one I would I would like to start just because this is a space that I've been working in in my role in curriculum and instruction. So I think the biggest success that I've had, and I'd actually love people's feedback on this is, um, so I have a course that is an arts integration course that has always been for pre-service teachers. And recently I started a program um, for a, a minor essentially for artists who wanna become teaching artists. So that's folks who wanna have teaching in their lives but don't necessarily wanna become certified classroom teachers. Um, and so I've put them in the same classroom. Uh, so this arts integration class is now required in both programs. And so this, this group of learners are folks who aspire to be elementary school teachers and folks who aspire to be professional artists who teach as part of their life trajectory. Um, and putting those two groups of young people, young people, they're college students, young people in, in community um, is proving to be a really powerful way to start to address that question. So I'm putting that out there as like one possible way to think about that. Yeah, connecting the pre-service teachers with the artists and having them you know, when I look at my own path from going to school, becoming a teacher, teaching first grade, getting my PhD, teaching teachers, I never had a life outside of that education, right? And so, like I mentioned earlier, sitting in the lab with the guys that are making gaming computers and or going to the movie camp and watching that happen, putting myself around other people really opened my eyes. And I think that that's a great partnership idea for the artists to work with the teachers for I think if the teachers could see how other people work and the things that they do in their lives and the, the connections that they make school could be different because many times we operate out of a the conception that we have ourselves and that can be very limited and in my own work in pre-service teacher like you Erica I I was um, making movies with kids in 2005 before iPads before phones, I was lugging out video cameras and laptops to schools and doing it, you know, because I felt so passionate about it. Then I try to publish it and everybody's like, it's just so weird. Who's doing this? Like, how is this relevant? Nobody wants this. So I just kept doing it and I didn't care. And I think that that was important because I was learning and the kids that were with me were learning and it changed the structure of our courses. So Leslie, you were asking about that. I, I integrate the arts in everything I do, no matter what level or what place, some more than others, but I, in undergraduate level, children's literature, uh, how do you read children's literature without having arts-based interactions with it? Writing, how do you compose if you aren't composing with just more than a word on a paper, you know, you can compose in other spaces. So I think it's just a matter of following your passion and what you believe and trying things out and taking a risk. And that's what it's all about to me. Yeah, Easy to I, I say think... when you're already a full professor though. I mean, <laughs> yeah. but I was doing it in 2005 before I was, so. <laughs> Sorry, Chava. Yeah. No, no, I just, I just, you know, kind of reinforcing this idea. It cannot be like an 
afterthought. Like uh, art is not an afterthought or an extra that we kind of yeah. put on the curriculum. And and also like I think you know changing this kind of the aesthetics of like pre-service teachers. Like I you know I teach pre-service teachers and I see their artwork and and I think they need they need some guidance not to you know kind of replicate that you know school art, uh, but also modeling like how art is a fundamental part of our human experience, like how it's transformative and how it's like life-giving. And you know I think this is the closest we have to magic. Like if we can sell art as a magical power, then I think we've done our job because we will see that it has value, tremendous value. Just don't say it that way. So to kind of close out, we do have a final question. Um, Gemma, you wanna take it away? Sure. Because we know that the primary audience for this podcast is graduate students and graduate researchers, we would just like to know what all of you want to say to researchers who are beginning to do work in arts-based literacies, researchers who are coming into this space now along the path that all of you are paving and have paved. I kind of want to follow the identity theme that we we talked about from pretty much the beginning of the conversation. I think I think many many of us, including myself, um, introduced ourselves by saying um, I'm not I'm not an art person, or I never thought of myself as an art person. But I I kind of wonder how how that would change if if we instead said something like What kind of an art person have I been? And just assume that we're all kind of art people, but in in different kinds of particular ways and i wonder how that would change how we think about our scholarship uh not as is are there a sort of artistic literacies or aesthetic practices that that are sort of foundational to what we do but in what ways what ways are there intersections in and how can that sort of provide and i love that chava keeps talking about like nourishment um, for ourselves and the communities that we work with I think that's a great um, question, Jasmine. Thank you for putting that out there. From now, moving forward, I will do that. <laughs> and, you know, like I think Ken Robinson often said that the, the question is not, are you creative, but how are you creative? And I think for us, it's a better question. How are we artistic or how, how are we an artist? And, you know, just to answer the question about what I would offer, I really think the most important lesson for me was to find allies with faculty and with fellow graduate students. I also think actively offering my craft. So for example, I worked with faculty throughout my graduate studies. I designed their book covers. I designed like journal cover art because I felt that if I can offer my art and, and you know, give another way to use it, it, it will benefit creating logos for conferences, uh, producing podcasts or starting micro movements in a classroom. Like even though, you know, sometimes we are told what to teach, but we can always sneak in like an artistic uh, assignment. Uh, I, for example, started introducing each topic of children's literature through a video game and, you know, incorporating artistic assignments to uh, artistic expressions into assignments was very helpful. So I think we have to actively kind of push the boundary when we enter the academia as a creative person and just offer it. It's an offering. Mm. I feel like I'm just entering. <laughs> I, I graduated two years ago. So um, I you think- You said the right thing though, Stephanie, <laughs> I think, which is that this, this life is too hard and too unforgiving to not do what you love. Mm -hmm. And if you go into it doing the thing you think you're supposed to do, you're going to turn around in 10 years and find that you're stuck in an intellectual life that is boring to you or unsuccessful. Right. And I, that's why I say, I really respect that the, the, that you committed to that from the jump um, because it took me a long time to come back around to that. So I'm sorry, I cut you off by saying that you already said the right thing, but I, you know, I think you gave, you gave the advice when, when you, when, in my opinion, when you kind of stepped into this, into this space. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I do. Cause I feel like, especially like coming into it, yes, it's an established field and yet 
There are so many people who doubt it, who have questions, who tell you, well, you should probably get a real research interest and then do that on the side. And so I think. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Um, Oh, yeah, I've been told a lot of things. And they work with you? They work with you? Not with me um, at the school, just as I was going through my doc program, uh, people within the school and outside of it when I presented. Um, And I think for me, it's like understanding that, yes, not everyone's going to appreciate it or get it. Just like when I walk into an art museum, I'm not going to get every painting or every sculpture that's present, but doing it anyway. And finding joy in your work, I think that is so important because academia can be so just not joyful. <laughs> and I finding mentors and people that are like you, it used to be that they needed to be next door, but now with the tools that we have, they don't have to be, you know, they can be anywhere. And that's important. If you read something or see something that inspires you, that you can connect with people. And I think that a lot of people are more willing to share and, and have those relationships outside of their, you know, university spaces. That's Twitter good. Saved my life. I love Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Thank you all so much for this. This was beautiful to witness. And as somebody who's defending a very arts-based dissertation next month, I mean, Dr. Tolliver, you've been like, the icon of this in recent years um, but ev- everybody here is already changing the way I'm thinking about this work and I'm just really honored that all of you yeah. are here part of this keep pushing those boundaries mm-hmm. doing what you love. fun fact before we go that maybe maybe most of you don't know Gemma was a college age teaching artist with the program that I started and ran in Chicago. So I can't claim, can't claim much, but I can say that young Gemma Cooper Novak was the same, you know, arts-based genius scholar at 20 (laughs) that she is now. Thank you. Delightful. I was an intern with Erica's program. I taught for years thereafter until I left Chicago and it's cool to be in the same orbit again. That's exciting. Oh, nice. Awesome. Thank you everyone so much for being here today. This was really amazing. It's nice to meet you all and talk with you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.